Hey everyone, thanks again for tuning in to the Faith Driven Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, we're talking about the negative power of false narratives and how we can fight against the lies we inherit. We'll also hear about overcoming barriers, building from brokenness, and why we need more female founders in the marketplace. We're going to also learn some practical tips on how all of us can equip others to rise up and live out their God-given call to create. Henry's joined by special guest host Paula Ferris for this empowering conversation with author, speaker, and leadership coach Joe Saxton. Let's dig in. One thing that we get to do that no other creature on the planet can do is that we get to add value by creating things. And I went from $40 million in revenue to watching everything that I had built for God get sold. You've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. I sold my company and I really had a hard time getting out of bed. Maybe been a long year, maybe been a hard life, maybe you're not all right. Faith-driven entrepreneurs to do what they want to do have to understand what God has given them. There's winners and learners, not winners and losers. I feel like I was chosen to be on this show for a reason and I had to do something. Like we are addicted to comfort. And he's called me into really difficult positions. That's what he's told me to walk into. People like you, people like me. This is where we all find grace. Come on now. Entrepreneurship can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. This podcast and the whole ministry seeks to equip you, the faith-driven entrepreneur, to seize the unique opportunities that God has placed in front of you and overcome the challenges that life will throw your way. These are the stories of how he takes broken things and makes them new. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Entrepreneur. Welcome back to a very, very special edition of the Faith Driven Entrepreneur podcast. I'm here today not with Rusty and William, though I miss them and they are awesome, but I'm here with a great friend of the movements, Paula Ferris. Paula has been with us on the conference before, and Paula is all about helping to empower women in the marketplace. She's all about her Christian faith, but many of you will know about her, as Rusty had said in the introduction from her time on Good Morning America weekend. And But one of the things is I look back on the 250 or so episodes, I think we've been underrepresented in the amount of material we've had that have focused on women. And to be clear, if you go back through the library, you'll find some incredible interviews with awesome women. And yet I'd like to see us make a little bit more of a focus on that with some of our material. And there's nobody better to do that with than Paula Ferris, who's dedicated her life, who's walked away from some dream jobs. She's even written a book about, right? Walking away from a couple of dream jobs to follow her calling in her faith. So Paula, thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much, Henry. And I just want to give you a forewarning. Do you have any idea what you're in for today with myself and our guest? You, do you I, know what you're in for? <laughs> I have a hopeful expectancy. I have a hopeful expectancy. And I'm thrilled. Um, I'm thrilled to be back. Good. Well, it's great to have you with us. And it's um and it's really great to have Joe. It was fun to talk to Joe just a little bit before went online. She's got the most beautiful accent. I know. But more importantly than that, she's got the most beautiful faith and she's written on this subject that we just haven't covered enough. And so to hear you guys go at it 
And part of me just wants to step back. But from time to time, I'm going to interject because I want to ask questions that I think that some of our listeners would ask. You guys are so familiar with each other and your calling. But I'm hopeful that you might be able to bring to our audience the sense of how God is working through all entrepreneurs. But yes, women entrepreneurs and Joe's work in highlighting the work of great women leaders from the Bible is awesome. And then just applying it to what's going on now and her work and your friendship. So I want to get out of the way, but just before I do that, just to tell you both how honored I am to get to be a part of this conversation. Thanks for joining. Hi, Joe. Hello. (laughs) See, there's that accent. Henry, you mentioned the accent. She had me at, hello. I met Joe. Joe, do you remember the moment we met a couple of years ago at the Global Leadership Summit? And I, I remember here, you're such a dynamic speaker. And yes, you are a champion of women. You are a leadership coach. You um, are in charge of the Ezra Collective. You are just a wonderful advocate for female entrepreneurs and women of faith. But I heard your accent and you are London born, but you have heritage in Nigeria. And I was like, That's right. I want Joe to just talk. Her accent <laughs> enraptured me. You pulled me in. I'm like, I could just hear you talk for hours, but you have a beautiful heart. You have a beautiful faith and you are just a powerful woman of God. And when Thank Faith you. Driven Entrepreneur reached out to me, they're like, do you have any connections with Joe? And I was like, oh, do I have Aww. connections with Joe? Joe's a dear friend. <laughs> We became great friends after that, after the yeah, Leadership Summit. I've kind of lured you into Carry Media, which is the work that I'm doing to champion working mothers. Absolutely. And I just think the world of you. So, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a privilege to be with you both. I'm very excited. And I'm excited about the chance for us to talk together and reflect together on one of my favorite topics in terms of women leaders. <laughs> We're going to talk a lot about why we need empowered women. And I just want to set the narrative here. Whenever we have these conversations, this is not going to be a time to bash men at all. I think you and I both believe, Joe, our hearts are that we need to invite men into the conversation. This isn't making a case against men. This is making a case for women entrepreneurs and women in leadership. You talk a lot about the challenges that women face in leadership. So for those listening, can you give us an overview of some of the unique difficulties that women face in the workplace, particularly female founders? I mean, um, the hard and the sad thing is uh, the reality is that there are many. I think when it comes to female founders, there's lots of data in terms of the amount of funding women don't receive and the percentage of funding. I think I saw an article with Forbes last year, which said that women founders maybe get 2% of all VC funding. And other studies have said 2.4, but somewhere on that two to three continuum, which isn't much, let's be clear. And when we break it down across ethnicities, it gets even smaller as well. And I think it's frustrating, but it's also a massively missed opportunity. It's a hugely missed opportunity for human flourishing, both those women founders, but also the work that they would build, because we know we need it. We know for entrepreneurs that funding is a significant part of their work. And I would say that's one of the challenges. I would say other challenges are access, access to mentors and sponsors. Who puts your name in the room? Who refers you to somebody? Who says, I know exactly who you need to talk to? You're out of those networks. That's a challenge. The reality of maybe, depending on your family system, depending on your background, societal expectations. And because we have 24 hours in the day, but they don't look the same for everybody. And so what does that mean for you in terms of your working life? 
in terms of your family life. It's a conversation you and I have a lot in the context of Carrie Media. What does it mean for a working woman to be ambitious about her dreams and also have a kid with strep throat? <laughs> um, to be ambitious about her goals, but also be keeping a mind out for an elderly relative who is vulnerable in some way, where the default positions, I mean, let's be clear, it's always taken a village to be a leader, men and women. This isn't unique to women. It's always been a village. It's just that for women, what that village looks like if your partner is also working raises some distinct challenges. And if there are expectations of what you should be and do. And Henry, I want to bring you into this conversation, but Joe, you just mentioned it. The the women get two to three percent of those VC dollars, but then there's the stereotypes, and you know, this is a lot of the work that I'm doing, and with you as well as one of our contributors at Carry. Once you become a mother, you are deemed a risk. You're a liability. We're seen as emotional in the workplace, and then the tension that I've always carried too, as a woman of faith. I grew up with a stay-at-home mom, and I grew up with this narrative of if you really love your children, you stay home with them. You don't work outside the home, but that's not a reality. And then the Proverbs 31 woman bought a field with the money that she made. So, But I want to bring Henry in right now. And Henry, the VC world is your world. You don't just have faith-driven entrepreneur. You have faith-driven investor, and you are a big partner in a VC firm. Can you tell us, like, why do you think women only get two to three percent? And I had to do a friends, family, and fools round to get Carrie Media to where it is now. And I'm getting ready to do a seed round. And literally every guy that I've talked to is like, oh, it's going to be really tough to raise money. And every woman I've talked to is like, there's tons of women that would love to invest in it. Why do you think women get two to three percent? So that's a great question. And I think that the answer is probably a complicated one. I think that it comes from there are much fewer women who are asking for the capital. So if I look at deal flow, the deal flow that comes across our plate as an investor, we probably have two to 3% of them are run by women founders. And so I don't know that there's necessarily a selection bias against choosing women founders. So it's not like 50% are coming in and we you know, only say, well, we're clearly not going to invest in the women. I don't think that's the case. And I got to be really careful speaking for an industry. But I will say that one of the reasons is that there are far fewer applicants that are women. And that shows that there's something going on in the culture, the ecosystem further back. Maybe it's in the incubators. Maybe it's the accelerators. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's with providing an alternate imagination for young women growing up about what their careers might look like. I think there are probably a lot of different things on that end. I'd like to think that we don't have any type of selection bias against women. I tend to think that women make phenomenal entrepreneurs and actually have an advantage. So if you think about if you have 50% of all consumers are women, and many could say that actually women consume more than men because they oftentimes, if you look at traditional gender roles, will buy a lot of the household goods for the family or take the lead in lots of the different decisions. In my family unit, my wife makes probably 90% of the purchasing decisions about what we do. And so when you have a woman who's at the lead of a company, her ability to be able to understand a customer is outsized. We should be looking for women to invest in. We should. One of the things, though, that I'd love to get your reaction back to you is maybe I could be so bold as to say it's the elephant in the room. We have invested in four or five women who have come in with really neat backgrounds and really neat business ideas. And four of them have left the business after three years to then go raise a family. Mm. And I want to celebrate that. Yes. Um, and yet uh, in each case, the transition didn't go very well. 
The transition from work to being a mother? No, no, no. From work oh. to the next leader. So we get really excited about person one. Now, I think that you know somebody could say, well, what happens if you invest in a man and the man decides he wants to do something different? And surely, to be clear, that happens too. It's just that as an investor, you look for pattern recognition. So one of the things I have to do as an entrepreneur, and this is one of the things and trying to really lean into it, part of that is today's series, right? Is just trying to understand how do we go ahead and say men and women are different. And there are some things that are some distinct advantages to female entrepreneurs. In order for them to really be able to flourish, they need to be able to have the right support to include capital. But we also need to acknowledge some of those gender differences in a way that investors can get comfortable with them. And then also the entrepreneur can get comfortable. So if I look backwards, I almost wonder, gosh, if we'd been more involved earlier on in saying, what might it look like if in two or three or four years, you feel called to raise a family? Let's plan for that well in advance of that. But I don't know because I want to be sensitive to it. But my sense is that the two of you will help me sort this all out. Joe, do you think we can solve this and world peace in the next 30 minutes? Um, maybe it might take 35, but I think we okay. should give it our best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Joe, um, what do you think about that? Henry, I think you raised like, there are about five different mm-hmm. things that you mentioned there. I think one, where the investment begins is huge huge in terms of you know pay disparities between men and women actually begin in high school they actually begin really early on so when you're talking teaching a woman how to negotiate you actually start with your teenagers you don't start with your graduates your postgrads and I mean it's data driven that's where the journey begins so I really liked what you said about there are certain things by the time it gets to your stage that you've already inherited that you'll have to dismantle to be able to invest in entrepreneurial women Mm. but there are things that are already weaved into the realities of their career and experience and access to things that have been limited not known that have long ago already happened before they're even thinking of kids before they're even thinking of relationships that are going to last in some way. So that was the, that was the first thing that struck me. And, and maybe we can pick that up again in a moment. And I loved what you said there about the forward thinking about women and children, because some women don't actually want to have children. Some do, but mm-hmm. can't or unable to for various reasons. Some this conversation is a luxury because they're going to work with kids anyway. I didn't grow up with a stay-at-home mom and not many of my peers did. We were immigrants. Everybody's working. We were all entrepreneurs from from childhood because that was our life. You don't Um, know any different. The term working mother is like, what's that? Every mother works, right? Absolutely. That was the reality of our existence. And and many, not just in my culture, but many of the cultures in our community. But what I loved about what you said is the thought of what does it look like two or three years in advance? And it is work, but it's work that I think is worth doing for all the reasons you said about women as consumers and their decision making processes. We are. And I think sometimes the reality is there is money left on the table when you are not Mm -hmm. investing in women and thinking strategically about how you do that from as an arc of time. And so that piece that you mentioned of what does it look like two to three years in advance? Now, obviously, I'm from a country which has maternity leave in a far more expansive way. Paid maternity leave, then followed by unpaid maternity leave in a far longer and a different kind of support, although I did have my kids in America, in a far more expansive way. And so there are certain things that you highlight that you're picking up because they actually didn't begin with you. Um, Paula, what would you say in terms of what we're seeing in the context of carry media on this front? Right. Well, I think to back it up a little bit, oh my gosh, I feel like we could just unpack this for a while. Um, At some point, there is a responsibility to 
have women at the helm, to have women yeah. at the table, to invite women. Because in society, like you said, you would invest in these women and then they go have a family. Well, sadly, that's an American thing where women, once we have kids, we're kind of faced with this decision. Kids are career. Kids are career. You can't have it both. In other countries, mothers don't know any different but to work. They take a great amount of pride in working. There's yeah. a lot of societal support where your attitude isn't, oh, your kid's your problem. No, I am my brother's keeper. There's a societal support. There's policy support, like Joe just mentioned with maternity leave, family leave, early childhood education. So kids are viewed as our greatest natural resource instead of here in America, a valueless commodity. So it's just, there's a lack of support. And then in America, we have this mentality as working moms, we got to carry it all. We can't ask for help. We can't have community. We don't have family living with us and helping us. So it's an American thing, I would say. But at some point, you look at the statistics, and we do a ton of statistics about working mothers and caring media. And again, this is not a case against men. We're making a case for mothers in the workplace, making sure mothers have a seat at the table. You look at all the research, and women-led companies typically are more profitable. Employees yeah. would rather work for women-led companies. Yet women CEOs, there's like less than 20% of the CEOs in America are women. And then there's this, weirdly, there's these false narratives that we're flight risk. We're just counting Cheerios in the quarter once we become mothers. And you look at all of the data, scientific data, that shows we become more empathetic, we become more efficient, yeah. more courageous, we're better leaders, we're better visionaries, our emotional IQ improves once we become mothers. But we're still fighting all these false narratives that society has built about us and around us. So I would venture to say, okay, at some point, Henry, there's a responsibility yeah. to Joe and to me and to other female founders to invite us and to make room for us and to not force us to have to make a decision between our children and our career. There's a response. We're great leaders. I don't care about the false narrative. Those are false narratives. We're great yeah. leaders. I'm actually smarter, more empathetic now that I'm a mother. So yeah. stop telling me that I'm just counting Cheerios in the corner and that I'm a risk and liability. I'm more efficient than I've ever been. So I think there's a responsibility to invite us to the table and to make room for us. I agree. And I think sometimes I think we've got to stop having the kind of crystal ball of the fear of what mm -hmm. she's going to become, you know, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Uh, the amount of women I know who are processing infertility, the mm -hmm. amount of women I know who are like, well, to be honest, yeah, I'm going to have kids, but I know what it's going to, I know what my working day looks like. I'm not actually asking you to take care of me. I'm just, I know I have a contribution to make. I know I will make this work because I have to, because actually me being an entrepreneurial mother is a great thing for my mm -hmm. boys and girls to see. And it's going to help my parents in their mature years who sacrificed for me. It's going to support my husband as he makes a career shift. There are all kinds of things that are in our minds when we're thinking of work that we often don't get to hear in this story because we're not telling the story. Yeah. The story is often being told about why we're not yes. applying or whether we exist rather than what were the obstacles? Again, which is why I loved what you said, Henry, which is what are the obstacles that meant the women didn't get this far? Because I, I know when I look at leaders that they, like you articulated so beautifully all the different things women bring. It's like, I know when I look at them that there's all this incredible contribution that women make. And yet that when I look at my table, there's two to 3%. Mm -hmm. And I want to invite VCs and I want investors to take that incredible curiosity they have and say, hold on a second, what happened? Because I'm missing out on some incredible leaders here who would do phenomenal things for the world around them. 
And I'm, mm. I'm going to find my way back and make sure if we need to build new pathways, that's what we're going to do. Because why are we missing out on this? Mm-hmm. So I want to throw it back at you. I love this. This is such a great discussion. And I can't believe it's taking so long to have. So I wonder if, as I reflect on different cultures, and I've been spending a lot of time in Africa recently, and my heart is really drawn toward there. And you can't help but see how many more women entrepreneurs there are than yep. men. Mm-hmm. Because there's support. Yeah. So I want to lean into two things. One is, because you touched on it a little bit, Paula, and you look at it, I mean, it's, to be very clear, you can be the most conservative person out there, and yet you have got to look at all the examples from the Bible. You got to look at Lydia. What was Lydia like? Yeah. Right. What was it like? What was that culture like? What was the environment like? Mm-hmm. Because my sense is that it's not just a question of this is a man's game. No. Let's go ahead and make room for more than two or 3% to let other women into the man's game. Let's instead look at what's the right game. Mm -hmm. What's the game that's being played in Africa? So in Africa, these are women who are having children and the culture, the system is set up in a way that allows for them to not have to just be women who are infertile or delaying things, but they're having children now, but they're also running businesses now. Mm -hmm. What are the things, if you were to go ahead and redesign the marketplace and the game to one that would look maybe like it did in biblical times, or maybe the way that it looks like in Africa or in other cultures, other societies, what would be things that you would change the game aside from just the man's game? And let's open up a bigger piece of that game. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think one of the things, and go with me on this, the first thing I would change and I would pay attention is to the stories we tell. The stories we tell. I think it was Marion Wright Edelman who said, it's hard to be what you can't see. And by that, I mean, like you highlighted the biblical stories and that. And we tell the story like throughout a year, we might hear about Mary and worthy of hearing. Clearly, we'll hear about (laughs) Elizabeth. Maybe on Mother's Day, you'll get another one. We don't often hear the story of Lydia. We don't often hear about Hulda, who was a spiritual advisor. We don't hear about Shearer, who's in the Bible, who built three towns. Built three towns. Built three towns. We don't hear about Deborah. We don't hear about Axa, who negotiated for more land for commerce's sake. We don't hear those stories. If you don't grow up hearing those stories or seeing those people, what do you believe you can be? And the reason why I say that is my grandmother was forced to retire at 97. <laughs> and when the family staged a carevention to say, it's time, <laughs> it's time. But she was taking things to the marketplace. She had her business. It has never occurred to me, Henry, to not work. Why? Because that's what I saw growing up. Yes. It has never occurred to me that when I had children that I was going mm-hmm. to stop working. Why? Mm-hmm. Because that is what my aunties have done. That is what my grandmother did. That is what generation upon generation has done. And alongside that, what was also included is that you raise your family in the context of extended family units, which again, mm-hmm. we know mm-hmm. that a nuclear family is a lot of pressure on two people who lived a very overstretched life. We know that. Yes. Mm-hmm. We know that not just for women. We know that for men who, let, let's admit, would like to know their children. <laughs> I mean, this is, right. you know, it's not just the mothers who want to be there for their kids. The fathers do too. You know, the uncles do, the godfathers do, the brothers do. And so I think one of the things I start with is what are the stories that we're telling about what is possible, about what is healthy, what is valuable? What are we saying about someone's contribution to human flourishing and society? What are we saying to a woman about the ideas that she can have? But when you only tell certain stories, they become a limiting story. 
And again, I would say this for men too, in the context of the Bible, most of our heroes of faith had jobs. They did, you know what I mean? Daniel really did work for government and had four terrible bosses, terrible bosses. Luke really was a doctor. Priscilla and Aquila really did make tents as they worked in their community. Mm-hmm. Lydia, as you mentioned, was a businesswoman. And actually, we would do well to look at these stories again and say, what yes, does this amen. mean for us, mm-hmm. for all of us? So I think that is one of the things that I would encourage us to look at is what stories are we telling? Because our stories declare possibilities yeah. and reveal certain things. And I think that would begin a mindset of expectancy and it would help us assume different things about each other actually, Mm -hmm. and our leadership and our entrepreneurship and our possibility. That would be my first thought. Paula, what else would you add? And Joe, even going back, you know, you talk about women in the Bible, um, you know, so I have a book coming out. You don't have to carry it all, ditch the mom guilt and find a better way forward. And it's a mainstream book. It's coming out in March, but one of the chapters, I really dove into this, you know, the biblical perspective. What does God say about women and work? And some of those examples you just mentioned, including the Proverbs 31 woman who bought a field with her earnings, but it is the stories that we tell, the stories that we've heard, but even backing up to Genesis one, where man and woman were created to co-labor together. And somehow we got to this point in society where the only job that the male has is to provide for his family. And the only job that the woman has is to nurture the kids. And, you know, you look at America over time, women used to describe themselves in America hundreds of years ago as resourceful and hardworking. And then in the fifties, everything changed. And we've almost done men a disservice by saying, just bring home a check. That's all you're worth, right? And the bonds of obligation were really, really, like they broke down right there, okay? Because men became distanced from their children and their only value was perceived as a paycheck. But I think if you go back to Africa, Henry, you mentioned Africa and how your heart's really there. You look around and there's no choice between kids and career. They're having children. The women are contributing to the table and they take a great amount of pride in what they're doing and what they're bringing home, but it's part of their societal structure. They have family, they have a community. The community looks out for the children. The community doesn't look at the children as a burden, as a valueless commodity that no, this is our greatest natural resource. Are these children, I have a responsibility to help make sure these kids grow up to be good humans. So the choice is never, you don't have to make a choice. And there's the structure, the societal structure, the policies, everything is set up to flourish. But I think before you even say, okay, what can we put in place? We have to establish the why. And this is where my journalist comes in. Who cares about the what? If we don't establish why it's important to have women at the table and mothers at the table, if we don't establish why it's important to support families, if we don't establish why it's important to support mothers in the workplace, who cares about the what? My whole thing is, the true health of a nation is dictated by how it treats its families and mothers yeah. in the workplace. So many of the problems that we have as a society are in direct result of how we treat families here in America and how we devalue mothers in the workplace. And here's the thing, we make it more difficult to have children, we'll have fewer children. We have fewer children, we'll have a labor shortage. We have a labor shortage, we'll have economic crisis. Guess what? This just became all of our problems, right? Even if we're not gonna support families and mothers in the workplace, for moral reasons, we need to do it for financial reasons and economic reasons. So I have a question for you. I wonder what are the other contributing factors that make it harder for women to grow up feeling that entrepreneurship or work is something that can happen. So you hit on one, I think is a big, 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 big one, which is the value of an extended family and that we have lost out 
by not having that. I think about Malcolm Gladwell in his book, Outliers, talks about the statistical anomaly with this town in Western Pennsylvania. I don't know if you remember the whole thing. It was just, they're looking at it and they're saying, oh my goodness, this town in Western Pennsylvania has this incredible longevity, much more so than the rest. And they looked at it, it wasn't the diet, it wasn't what they did, but it was actually the percentage of multiple generations living under the same roof. Hmm. So you mm-hmm. get a sense that grandpa's there to pick up a kid from school or whatever. Yes. And there's this kind of community that was raising the kid. And you almost have to look at that and say, you know what? I wonder if the child's life was actually better off for that. I don't know. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about it, but you're bringing that up makes me think about it. But here's a second one that I wonder if there's a problem. My sense in spending time in Africa is that there aren't a lot of kids in Africa that have got to be at the travel soccer practice at 3.30 and the travel basketball practice at four. And that- <laughs> uh, Guilty of that. Yeah. So the question is, is the experience, is the way that we have elevated, I'll throw myself under the bus. I have just gotten complete, our family has gotten completely sucked into the youth sports vortex, which almost makes it like, wow, if you're going to go ahead and you're going to do all these sports across three boys- And you're going to want to go ahead and have this. And it's an idolatry thing. It's seriously, it's an issue. Now, competitive sports, incredibly important. But when I was growing up, if you want to be compete at the highest level, you could always stay local, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it was easier for my mom to have a job because she didn't have to worry about getting me to the next highest thing because there wasn't a next highest thing, but there is now. And so now if somebody wants to work, whether it's a man or the woman, somebody else has to manage all the different complexities now that we've invested in our children. And I wonder if that's good for the family. I wonder if that's good for the mother, for the father, or for the child. What do you think? I think that's a fascinating one because in the end, I mean, and I will say this, that not every, when we think extended family, those are blood and non-blood ties. Do Mm -hmm. I think you can build community in the context of your sport? And yes, you can. But I think the reality is when you have an overscheduled life, someone's got to do it. I'm with you. I have two athlete kids and it has been fascinating. Like in England, we didn't do this. Never mind Nigeria. In England, we didn't function like this, mm-hmm. like I see here. So it's not even everywhere. But um, I will say someone's got to be flexible and someone's got to be able to take them to the practice, <laughs> to be on the booster club, to travel <laughs> to the meet or the match or wherever it is. And I think there is such an anxiety around some of the sports and stuff. It's like, you don't want your kid to miss out. You want them to have opportunity and you're on this treadmill. And if you assign someone to that task, that person is going to be giving more time to that and less time to something else. That's just the reality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think it's your why. And I'll push back on this, Henry. We are a huge sports family. Okay. So my husband has a full-time job in commercial real estate, but he coaches high school basketball. He coaches my son's youth basketball. My daughter plays travel volleyball. My youngest plays basketball. Like we love sports. And for me, it's not about the sport so much. Like we do this as a family. And yes, like sometimes there are logistical nightmares. Like I was an hour late picking up my daughter from school one day. She still (laughs) won't let me forget about it. But I think it's all about your why. Why are you doing what you're doing? But also, are you inviting the whole family into it? Like when we do this, everybody was at JJ's game last night supporting him. All five of us were there supporting him. Now, this is where community comes in. We have found wonderful community within sports. And also, my kids are playing sports because I don't want them 
to be selfish. I want them to know that life isn't just about them. I want them to be a good teammate. I want them to be unselfish. I want them to be resilient. I want them to learn from failure. So for me, so many life lessons aren't learned in the classroom. They're learned on the athletic field. And we are committed. We will, that is a priority for us. We will make it work. And yes, you can stretch. I think you do have to have boundaries within that. And okay, you get one sport every semester focus on that thing, right? And then you support it. And then you make sure that you're on mission together as a family and you do it together and you support one another. And if you need to hire a teenager to drive your kids around too, if you need some help here and there, <laughs> so, but build community around it too. Well, I think that for another time, I think that we've touched on something that's potentially a challenge, which is just the false narratives that we might buy into about what it means to be a father or a mother or what And so redeeming the youth sports industry will be a topic for another podcast. (laughs) That's a big one. This is the part of the show that we feel most like teenage YouTubers. And just trust me, I understand how cheesy it sounds. So let's just get it out of the way. If you like this content, please rate, follow, and share the podcast. It really does help as we seek to expand this movement. We don't ask for donations. We don't fundraise. But you can easily support our ministry by rating, sharing, and subscribing to the show. Okay, that's it. We did it. Now, let's get back to the good stuff. But imagine, but continue on this riff about just both of you, just imagining a better way, imagine a climate in which men and women are both able to flourish, that they're able to lean into their God-given call to create in a society that welcomes that. And yes, again, part of that is access to capital. But my sense is that there's so much more to that. Dream about what does it look like or in other cultures where you've seen this work well, how does it work and what lessons can we take and adopt in this crazy, harried culture that we find ourselves in in the West? Mm -hmm. I think we normalize some things. Like I said, I think we normalize telling the stories Mm -hmm. and celebrating the stories. Big deal, by the way. You mentioned that before, and just I didn't do a good enough job of uh, underlining and underscoring that. What are the stories of our heroes? Yeah. And I think back to the documentaries we've done at Faith Driven Entrepreneur, we just haven't done enough work of showing women who have been able to do that and do that really well. And that has implications. It does. I want to invite us to tell the stories of everyday men and women and to hunt those stories down because they do exist and arrange to highlight the introverts and the extroverts, the different generations of different ethnicities, because it paints a picture of what normal is. And it helps all of us from moving towards particular defaults because so many entrepreneurs are trapped in the limits of their imagination. You know, so so many people with so much potential are trapped and they're just kind of sitting on broken dreams that haven't been unpacked because they haven't seen possibilities. So I think normalizing, telling a range of stories and we can all do that in our homes. The stories that we're telling, the podcasts that we're listening to, the books, the heroes that they see. And we seek them out. We seek them out so that we normalize showing men and women who are making a difference in the world, who are business leaders, who are entrepreneurs, who are founders, who are nonprofit, the whole range. And I think we have to find ways of doing this, but we've got to normalize how we share information. So my husband, I have two teenage daughters. My husband got the kids investing at a very young age. They've been investing for years. 
I have a senior and a sophomore and he's like, okay, let's talk about how we invest. Why? Because he wants them to have a language and an understanding of how money works in the world that Mm. they live in. And we want them to know how to negotiate and to feel competent. And yeah, they know how to cook. They know how to deal with their cars. They know how to handle money. What are we giving people access to in terms of information and not just teenagers, but at every level? I think for those of us who run companies, who are investors, do as much as we marvel at a woman's absence, I think we take the time then to tell people, to let people know, hey, there's money out there if you, Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you know Mm -hmm. this, but there's money out there. And I'm telling you there's money out there. And if you're not sure how to do that, let me tell you how. (laughs) Let me tell you what it looks like. Let me tell, because I maybe have assumed that you've had these conversations with people, but maybe you haven't. Maybe I've assumed because I would happily tell people that you've had a chance to know that this is possible, but you've Mm -hmm. got an idea, you've got skills, you've got talents, you've got potential. I'm going to tell you stuff. I'm going to refer you. I would encourage every male leader to have the name of five women in their pocket at all times. At all times. And not just mentoring them, but sponsoring Sponsoring them. Advocating for them. Yes. Mentoring is different than sponsoring. Yep. Absolutely. That's so good. Sponsors get you to the next level. Yep. Mentors are great. Advice is Mm -hmm. wonderful, but I need my name in the room. Yep, exactly. And we listed those stats, like women-led company, when mothers are at the table, when women are at the table, they're typically, you know, more profitable. Employees like to work for women. What we want to do, especially at Carrie, is change the game for working moms. We want motherhood to be celebrated instead of scrutinized and punished. We don't want women to have to make this choice between kids and career. And I know a lot of women, that's not even a choice to begin with, but we want motherhood to be valued. Did you know the statistics of young women who are like, I don't want to have kids because of how it's going to impact my career? Just even even thinking about that breaks my heart. And when we talk about women and entrepreneurs, you know, I don't know if you know this, Henry, but like one of the fastest growing sectors of entrepreneurship during the pandemic through today has been mothers. And they're not doing it with VC dollars. You know, that we women get two to three percent of the VC dollars. Mothers probably get less than one percent. And mothers like Joe, mothers of color, probably get less than less than less. Zero right? point three four. Mm-hmm. 0.34. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there there are m- mompreneurs out there. We they yeah. are, it was the one of the fastest growing sectors of entrepreneurship. Telling that story, they're out there. They're not asking probably because they're not getting the money. We're starting. I'll put this out there. Joe, I know that you need to raise money for Ezra yeah. Collective and yeah. you and Confidence came to me and you're like, I don't know if it's going to happen. Some of our sponsorship fell through. For us at Carry Media, we're going to be doing a seed raise, but we're doing a 501c3 for mompreneurs called the Carry Fund. We just, we're going to mentor, yeah. we're going to fund, and we're going to tell the stories of mompreneurs. It's a 501c3. We're launching it next year. So good. So like help us, connect us to the right people that we need to help fund what we're trying to do and the impact that Joe's trying to make, the yeah. impact that I'm trying to make. That's also how you can help us, not just yeah. having the names and sponsors, but bring people to us, help yeah. us out. We're trying to make an impact here for the kingdom and it can be really difficult and really frustrating. Can I say something that what you said there about trying to make an impact for the kingdom? There's a book called The History of Christianity by Rodney Stark. He wrote a number of years ago and he started from a sociological perspective on it. How did the church make this impact? And one of the things he said and he notes was the church massively attracted women, massively attracted women because they treated them differently from society. And he mentioned certain things in terms of children, but then he also talked about there were opportunities for leadership and contribution to make so that they were seen as 
contributors to society. So women enjoyed great status across the early church and leadership opportunities that they didn't have anywhere else. And I thought it's fascinating to see that the early church had this thing that they treated women so distinctly, it was attractive. And I would encourage us, if the VC stats are this in the world, what do we want the VC stats to be for the faith-driven entrepreneurs and investors? So good, Joe. Do you know what I mean? We talk about being countercultural. I mean, entrepreneurs are amazing at seeing the gaps, about seeing things that don't exist. So are there incubators for teenage girls? If not, I guess it's time. Are there incubators for young graduates? Oh, and I think of your mothers, think of you. Are there for empty nesters, for mothers, for the whole thing? Think of the gaps so that there, so that we can say, actually, yeah, the church did this. Mm -hmm. <laughs> actually, faith-driven people, faith-fueled people saw the value these image bearers could make, these azers could contribute and actually invested in it. And now we're all getting the benefits. That's our spiritual heritage. It's just another one of those untold stories. So I love it. It's a very complex problem. There are lots of different solutions, but I want to submit to you and just have you react to this. And maybe our audience can email in or comment on LinkedIn and just engage with this conversation as well. I think that the concept of the fact that there are only two or 3% of females that get funding, that in and of itself is not enough to be able to get funding for women entrepreneurs to where it needs to be. When you look at injustice for incubators for young women or empty nesters, those are all things that I think that a redemptive church should be looking at, to be clear. But I think that there's something that, that unlocks something much bigger than this, and that is that it makes sense to invest in entrepreneurs for business reasons, for market reasons. Okay, so if the economy thrived two, 3,000 years ago, thrived with women in leadership, it's not just a function of we should just be nice and demeaning to women and they only get two to three percent. So let's give them four to five or six percent. And then maybe that we've doubled the impact. No, no, no. I don't think that's sustainable enough. I think that instead there can be a case made and it's just smart business. Absolutely. But Paula, you're on something that I think was really interesting. It was a riff on all the different advantages. Women leaders have this much more traction and maybe employee retention or net promoter score or those different yep. types of things. And then people are going to be like, you know what? Gosh, women in business seem to make a lot of sense 2000 years ago. Maybe that is an investor. Maybe that's a big opportunity. And we've just missed it. I interviewed the CEO of Giftology. His name is John Rulin. And he says, mothers are the most under rated workforce on the planet. He has a hundred percent retention rate. He only hires moms. Okay. But again, it's this, you can't hold mothers to these archaic nine to five standards. If I need to go pick up my kid, allow me to be fully mother and also mm. employed. Allow me to wear my mother hat at work and support me and yes. I get the job done for you. And mm. I will not leave. I will not leave. And we know that turnover is one of the highest costs of doing business. But just know when I became a mother, whether the baby grew in my belly or in my heart, I yeah. became more empathetic. I became more efficient. I became more courageous. I became a better leader. My IQ went through the roof. I'm a better visionary. I'm a better communicator. All of these pluses. I think moms need a rebrand personally. Yeah. We need to be rebranded. And seen for their strengths. What you're saying right now is for their strengths. So yes, let's absolutely. not go ahead and leave the mom sign like, listen, I, yes, I've got two kids and I'll see them at six o'clock. You don't have to worry about me and my mom. Somebody, if they get mm -hmm. sick, somebody else to take care of them. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. No, no, embrace it. So I want to suggest a, a potential solution. I'm hesitant in offering a little bit, but I'd love for you to both respond Ooh, to it. I, I love this. Are you going to be on the hot seat? 
I don't know. No, I'm going to be on the hot seat maybe a little bit with the audience because people are going to say, well, that's all well and good. That's a great solution, but it only works for you with the type of company that you have. So we do have a company called Bandwidth, and it's a relatively large company, and we're building a new corporate campus. And on the corporate campus is a Montessori school so that our working moms that have young families are going to be able to see their kids you know, at 10 o'clock and at one o'clock and at lunchtime and after lunch, and they can still be moms because we value working moms. We also know pragmatically that working moms are just incredible workers. They come up with incredible ideas. And so we can look at this for shareholders and say, this is just smart business sense. So somebody might say, well, that's great, but I have a company with 25 people. And, you know, when's the last time you knew a company had 25 people that built a Montessori school at their work? But I wonder if there's this kind of this alternate imagination for us as a church family. When you talk about the extended village concept, for us as the church of Boise, Idaho, to say, you know what, we're going to have a startup incubator and accelerator where we're going to have all these different businesses and combined, we're going to have a Montessori school, right? Or combined, we're going to have this kind of village system. Yeah. What does broader Christian community look like to support the entrepreneur and the working mom that's an entrepreneur? What needs to exist that doesn't yet exist? There is a solution there. Mm -hmm. And somebody smart listening to this is going to come up with the solution for it. And I think you're onto something. But yes, as a collective, I love what you said, Joe, about the responsibility that we have as a church, the responsibility that we have as believers, right, to help solve this problem and stop waiting for corporate America and government and society to solve it for us. I just think when you have a problem, but also missed opportunity economically, socially, practically, spiritually, then all hands are on deck. So the government can do what the government's going to do. Business leaders are going to do what they're going to do. And there are things that need to be done. Policies do need to be shifted. Mm -hmm, But the church mm -hmm. can do what the church is going to do. I would add to that. I was with a number of women leaders in Silicon Valley three weeks ago, talking about just how they're branching out, all the wonderful things that they're doing. I tell you, one of the things the church could do as it creates its resources to think of resources for working mothers as well as mothers, Mm. working women, working fathers, because actually, if we're going to really, I love what you're saying, Henry, about if we're going to imagine, one of the things we can imagine is you spend most of your working hours outside a church building. (laughs) How are we meeting you there? How are we investing in you there? Are there things that are in a digital space that are done asynchronously? Is there resourcing and investment and encouragement that can be given asynchronously? Because the irony is, I love when you were describing that preschool, it reminded me, my husband was a pastor. He's had a number of careers, but a number of years ago, he was a pastor. And the kids were at the preschool at the church. I was traveling for work. So I was on a plane every two, three weeks. And he would check in on the kids a few times in the day. You know what I mean, he would be like, go and have lunch with them and all that kind of stuff and hang with them. And honestly, you see the benefits of that relationship today. Do you know what I mean? Even though he's now in the corporate space and doing other entrepreneurial ventures. So I do think you're onto something. The irony is in our life, it was the other way around for the ones who encountered it. But I, again, I want to encourage us and invite, it's an invitation to maximize the people that we are in creatively thinking of ways in which we can support our entrepreneurs at this time. You know, and again, this is data driven. The stuff we're saying isn't about how can we let women who feel left out feel in? This is, it's not about that. Neither Paula and I are emotional enough for that. No. I just mean, we're, not, we're not even that sensitive. It's actually, <laughs> I mean, like McKinsey and company have done that women in the workplace study every year and looked mm-hmm. and seen data driven, the bottom line financially 
get you women in higher places of leadership. You get mm -hmm. better brainstorming, better networking. You understand your audience better. You understand your market, your world, your sphere better because you have minds with different gifts and different perspectives. This also translates ethnically as well, looking at these problems and at the decision-making processes. I mean, if you want to do it out of sympathy, fine, but do it because it's going to actually benefit your business like you would not believe. I think where the faith community could make the biggest impact are there mothers, are there women at the decision-making table of churches, of church communities, of faith-driven organizations, right? Do we even have a voice there? It's the representation that we see. And as Joe just mentioned, it's not just anecdotal, like this is statistical empirical evidence that shows that women are fantastic leaders. Mothers are incredible leaders. People want to work with us. So invite us to the table. There needs to be an initiative. I'd love to do an initiative of like when moms lead. And this isn't at the expense of men. This isn't pushing anybody out of the conversation. We're just making a case for us. We need to be at the table. And when we're at the table, you'll see policy change. You'll see society change. You'll see attitudes, stigmas, narratives change, right? And I think ultimately you'll see stronger families and you'll see mothers supported in the workplace. Yeah. I think there are many things that a faith-driven entrepreneur needs to look at to invest in areas where there is injustice mm -hmm. and not equal access. And, you know, I mentioned before that my heart has been driven to frontier and emerging markets, particularly Africa. But I'd submit to the audience that's listening, just in agreement with what I think you are saying, is that as we are thoughtful about this, it's just good business. It is good If business. we want to go ahead and create an environment where we will see more female entrepreneurs coming out asking for the money. We need to be able to have them in. We need to give them an alternate imagination beginning in their high school years. And we do need to address problems when there's inequality and injustice. Like, for instance, a 16-year-old boy should be getting paid for the same job, the same rate, a 16-year-old girl. I think you started off the podcast by mentioning that there's pay inequality even at that level. So don't say that's because you're worried that the 16-year-old girl is going to start a family. That's just wrong. So the many different ways to handle this, but I think that well, faith-driven entrepreneurs do need to look out and suss out the injustice or inequality, but this just makes really good business sense. As an entrepreneur, if you don't see the power of women in your business, you're missing out as an investor. If you can't see the distinct advantages that a female entrepreneur brings to the marketplace in the way that they think about solving problems, the way that they think about leading their companies with this empirical research, you're missing out. That's right. Henry, I think we need to wind this down. We went way off the rails. Do we have time? Hey, I can't even remember what the, where the rails were, or what we were uh, even supposed to talk I don't know. about. Well, you kind of, Joe and I kind of knew that would probably happen. We're both Enneagram eight. So yeah, that was Surprise. about to happen. Do you have Surprise. time for a lightning round, Joe? Because I know we kind of went over. I'm in. I do like me some lightning. Let's do a real quick, like 30 okay. to six, 30 second responses, like lightning. I'm talking yep. lightning. Okay, no. it's not a slow roll. No, nope. this is lightning. Okay, Fast. Joe, lightning round with Joe Saxton. Okay, what is your family like, and how do they feel about your work? Okay, I have two teenage daughters, a senior and a sophomore. Husband, we are a multi-ethnic family. My husband and I are Brits. He's a Scot. I'm Nigerian, and my kids were born in the states. They love my work. They love it. They think it's normal. I remember my daughter being surprised that doctors could be male. Real, see, that's the stories that she has heard growing up, right? She doesn't know any different. So, but now they expect everybody to do everything. Right, exactly, including you, right? Um, your website says that you enjoy conversations over great meals. What meal do you picture when you read that back? 
I want to tell you, I'm embarrassed to say I thought a lot about this. Chicken tikka masala. <laughs> Chicken tikka masala, which is an Indian curry. Um, Love it. Garlic naan, rice. Mm, so and now I'm hungry because it's lunchtime. What's one thing you wish more women leaders knew about their identity? That they are not, not enough and they are not too much. That they have a contribution to make. What's one thing that you wish more men would do to empower women? Sponsor them. Okay. Bet on them. What's a charity or organization you give to? Um, right now, one called Every Meal, which deals with food insecurity in Minnesota. The demand has gone up about 30% in recent months. And kids need to eat if they're going to do well at school. That's right. It's one of the basic needs. And we don't know there's so much food insecurity in America. Yeah. In, uh, here in America. Henry, do you want to ask our closing question, how we take all of these episodes out? Yeah, no, happy to. And Joe, thank you for answering the question on the charity. You know, one of the other things that Rodney Stark talks about in his book, The Rise of Christianity, is that also the church did a great job of being really, really generous. Yeah. And when it's really generous, the church grows. You know, in the early days, the Emperor Julian says, you know, these Christians, they take care of their poor and ours as well. And this has been crazy thought and then through the bubonic plague. And so yeah, you brought another element of Rodney's work to this podcast, which is talking about empowering and being attractive to women in a way that we were able to value that. And that's just powerful. It honors God. The church grows when that happens. And then, of course, when we're generous. The last question we like to ask each one of our guests, believing that God's word is alive. And then he speaks to us through it. And he speaks to us through the spirit he's placed in us. He speaks to us through Christian community, but he speaks to us also through his word, of course. And is there something recently that you've heard from God through his word that has been an inspiration or encouragement to you? Oh, I'm so reminded. I think just today, I'm currently reading through Corinthians, second Corinthians, and it talked about where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom at the end of chapter two, and I'm struck by the freedom that we get in our relationship with the Lord. Freedom to heal from the, the past that you can't get past. Freedom to know him. Freedom to be all that he created us to be. And whenever I read it in the word, I think the Bible reads our life. <laughs> so I ask myself the question, where are you not free? And what is mm. God inviting you into? Where are you not free and why are you not free? And one of the things, yeah, gosh, I hope we get a, a chance to do a second edition with you is you talk a lot about brokenness and just how do we get free from some of that brokenness and the freedom that comes from Jesus. And next time we're going to talk about how you coach people, how you work with communities. There's so much more. Hopefully, Paul, we get a chance to do this again. I told Thank you she you. was awesome, didn't I? Yeah, you I told you, you she's kidding. amazing. She's you one of my kidding. favorite human beings. You're so kind. Thank you, guys. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve the community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Entrepreneurship is often a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other faith-driven entrepreneurs like yourself. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet for an hour a week with your peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdrivenentrepreneur.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is In the House by David Crowder. 